Hi, this is Beth AQ, and this is the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. The Glass House is a space for spoken word artists, poets, sound makers, audio storytellers, emerging cultural leaders, thinkers, writers, and anyone who celebrates story as a means of self-expression, self-representation, and community building. I hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website. I acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation here at Triple R, who have cared for this land since time immemorial. I pay respects to Elders past and present. It always was and it always will be Aboriginal land. Coming up on the show today, uh, I'm going to be joined by the Director of Books and Boots, Denise Kickett. Books and Boots is an organisation rehousing pre-loved books from council libraries and private donors and freighting to First Nations communities in regional and remote Australia. They've been doing all this great work since 2015 and Denise joins me this afternoon to speak about the work they do ahead of an upcoming Closing the Gap fundraiser where they're going to be doing a screening of the wonderful doco In My Blood It Runs and later in the show... I'll be joined by two contributors of the new Black Ink Anthology, Growing Up Disabled in Australia, Jess Knight and Natalia Wikana. Uh, It is a wonderful collection of writing, exploring people's experiences with chronic illness, terminal illness and disability. Um, I was lucky enough to catch Jess Walton last month, uh, but there are just so many great stories in here. So I'm very excited to be chatting with these contributors today. I hope you can stay with me. Books and Boots aim to close the health and literacy gap for First Nations children one book at a time. And they do this by rehousing pre-loved books from council libraries and private donors and freighting to First Nations communities in regional and remote Australia. They've been doing this great work since 2015 and joining me to speak about their work ahead of a fundraiser they have next week is Director Denise Kickett. Denise, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for your time. Thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, I think it's great that you guys have given us the opportunity to help promote um, not only the screening of In My Blood It Runs, but also for Books and Boots and what we do there. So, yeah, happy to be having a chat with you today. It's, um, it's a pleasure. It sounds like a really incredible initiative, Books and Boots. Do you want to maybe start by telling us a little bit about how you first got involved with it? So I'm not sure if the listeners are are familiar with Johnny Harding, but Johnny Harding is a um, fantastic playwright and he's been an advocate for, um, you know, movements around, you know, advocacy for reconciliation and all sorts of things uh, throughout Victoria, but not only in Victoria, but in Australia. So he sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, Sis, look, what are you doing? Because I know you've been working in the... um, not-for-profit and just helping out the Aboriginal community a lot. Would you like to come on board as a, a, a director? And so he gave me a bit of an insight and he told me about him and Tara. Uh, Tara Newland, who's the other co-founder of Books and Boots, and told me what their journey has been since 2015. And I just thought, look, it's something that was in tune with me and, and what I'm about. And, yeah, so I came on board last year, middle of last year, and I find it quite exciting and it's... um something that I've been passionate about, you know, to help our kids mm. through education and, and reading is all, you know, I love reading. So if I can advocate and influence people to read more books, especially my mom, um, happy to do that. And so that's why, one of the reasons why I joined Books and Boots. Mm. 
Mm, absolutely, and it is uh, a really important uh, work that you're doing. I, I suppose with the aim of um, closing the literacy gap for young First Nations people in Australia. When you, I suppose, when we talk about closing the gap, what do what do you mean? So closing the gap in regards to, you know, intergenerational lack of um, opportunities, especially with our young kids. Um, sometimes our education system doesn't, don't pick up on things like, simple things like hearing. So you'll, you'll see that some of our kids haven't had the opportunity to actually go and get their ears checked or their eyes checked. And so some of the numeracy and literacy things that they miss out on is because of some underlying health issue. And so through Books and Boots and through the um, Little Treasures project that we have, we're able to, to help communities pick up on those underlying health issues. Um, and so, you know, with getting, sitting down and just having a book out with the parents or with the, with the child, it just helps, um, you know, people that are advocating and, you know, it might be welfare workers or it might be the local nurse or the health worker that we can share information with about, you know, somebody that's not um, picking up on the numeracy or the literacy stuff because of an underlying health issue. So I think it's really important. And that, those are one of the things that we're, we're hoping to to really showcase through, um, you know, increasing the opportunities for our for our kids through their numeracy and literacy because there might be some sort of underlying health issue that nobody's picking up on. Mm. So if we can use the, the reading resource as a vehicle to actually, you know, showcase some health issues that might be happening, uh, those are one of the things that, you know, I, I would love to see uh, through through what we're doing with our Tiny Treasures project. Mm. Um, I suppose just on that, your work, uh, you know, you work on the Tiny Treasures, Treasures project. You've also got the tutoring program. Can you speak a little bit about, I suppose, what these programs look like in reality? So, yeah, so the Tiny Treasures program is a fantastic opportunity where we get a lot of local um, organisations, which it could be the local library or it could be, you know, a local cafe or an Aboriginal organisation uh, that we link in with to actually showcase around, you know, um, grabbing a book and the importance of just learning how to read. Mm -hmm. So some of our kids get pushed through uh, the education system without, you know, without any understanding about how, how to read or write. So um, the little, uh, the Tiny Treasures um, project is, is really important around, you know, getting community participation. We get a lot of donors from, like I said before, the state libraries or the libraries, that local community libraries, um, and also just local cafes as well, people that just want to share their their books that they don't want to throw out and um, destroy, so they will donate them to uh, Books and Boots. Um, the other thing is the, the mentoring, not the mentoring, the tutor, tutoring program is quite important as well because it picks up on what I was talking about in regards to some of those issues around, you know, the health things that aren't getting picked up by these kids. And so as tutors, we're, we're able to to pick those out, to point those out and to share them with other professionals that might be, um, you know, coordinating a plan around helping this child to achieve their, their best outcomes for any educational purposes that might be um, a hindrance in the future. Mm. 
Yeah, it's um, it's such important work that you're doing. You know, on your website, it, you kind of spoke about this a little bit, but it kind of states your your guiding um, found your principles that you are kind of guided by in your work, and it talks about partnership and collaboration, and obviously environmental sustainability, which we see through the reuse of um, of pre loved books. You know, you talk about taking a bottom up uh, grassroots approach to addressing disadvantage. Can you speak a little bit about, I suppose, how these principles play out when you're working? Uh, yeah, sure. So um, all of us that are on the board at the moment are, are all strong advocates in regards to, you know, working with grassroots and, and giving opportunities that haven't been, um, you know, those opportunities haven't been showcased or, you know, doors haven't opened for certain remote Aboriginal communities or communities that we're working with. So we like to use books as a, as a mechanism to actually... Um, build capacity within our within our areas that we're hoping to, you know, such as the education system, but also the health system as well, you know, because in, in the Aboriginal-focused world around our children, it, every um, everything sort of intertwines. And so you've got health, education, um, you know, transport, all these issues that can be a hindrance to a child's capacity to learn. And so we will work with those professionals or those, you know, uh, people that are that are helping build capacity in those communities to help showcase, you know, what books can books and boots can do from our, you know, from our capacity in regards to their education through through learning how to read a book mm-hmm. um, or either by, you know, doing the tutoring online with them. So um, some of those things around closing the gap. Um, because there's two there's two things with regards to you know close the gap and closing the gap. Closing the gap is more in tune uh, with books and boots because we are about that numeracy and literacy mm. and helping to build those um, communities that we're working with the capacity to further develop their educational skills through reading and writing. Mm. Yeah, it's um yeah again, it's just incredibly important work that you're doing and you, you know you've got this uh, screening that is happening of. Uh, the documentary In My Blood It Runs, which is, you know, I was lucky enough to see a couple of years ago when it came out and it's, um, you know, it shows the story of a young Aboriginal boy, um, Duan, and his experience with the Australian education system and it is, you know, it's a really powerful and moving documentary that is really a stark reminder of how uh, Australia's education system is failing young people and, of course, in particular young Aboriginal people by not incorporating uh, First Nations history and, and, and learnings into the curriculum. Can you tell me a little bit about um, why you chose this film to illustrate that kind of theme of closing the gap? Oh, look, it's exactly what you just said. <laughs> and and it showcases, um, you know, through the whole documentary, it just showcases this. If a community doesn't have the opportunity to actually excel through education because of, you know, there, there's things where people, you, can, you, can, you can't shift them into a place of, you know, non-racial behaviour. Mm-hmm. So we understand that, you know, the education system has failed a lot of our children, but, they have, but it also has, has failed our um, adults as mm-hmm. well because, um, you know, there's many people, my my own consultancy that I do is um, I do cultural awareness workshops and, and this is around the historical 
you know, white, white Australia has a black history. And so understanding in a urban context on how, you know, people are so naive to, to systems. And then when you go to rural and remote, understanding how racial tones, undertones can be projected through educational, because they don't have the same understanding about the historical context of this country mm. and our children get caught up in that. And, um, you know, it's going to take a long way to go for the, our policing uh, services to build relation, strong relationships with our remote communities as well. And, you know, even the education system with our teachers that go into these remote communities, they don't have a full understanding about the structures from a cultural context, um, you know, from, you know, using traditional ways of uh, working uh, with local Aboriginal language into, you know, how do you articulate that into a educational sense um, with English, just plain English. And so a lot of the teachers in the education system do have a, um, have a challenge in dealing with that because when you're talking from a remote perspective, a lot of these kids have, you know, English as their third or fourth language. And so there is a bit of a barrier there. Um, our policing services as well. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we, we showcased this. We wanted to do this movie again, documentary, sorry, uh, because we just believe it just showcases a lot of the undertones, racial undertones, also the, the lack of capacity for these kids to actually articulate and help, you know, their own educational um, learnings that they want to really excel in. Mm. Yeah, it uh, it really reminds me of. Uh, I was just watching the uh, video on the In My Blood It Runs website earlier, and um, Duan, who's the you know the star of In My Blood It Runs, and he addresses the United Nations Human Rights Council um, and to essentially call on the Australian government to treat uh, Aboriginal kids like him better. And you know, he he said, "I want my school to be run by Aboriginal people. I want adults to stop putting ten-year-old kids in jail." Um, you know, very powerful, sobering address from such a young person. Do you feel that um, Juan's experience is very similar to some of the experiences of the young people that you work with? Uh, yeah, which is quite sad. Mm. It's um, it's sad because it is so true. He's not unique to his own journey. Mm. It um, it, it happens quite a lot in this country, especially in a in a remote sense. But not only in a remote sense, but even in the urban setting as well. You know, a lot of our kids that are raised in um in urban settings have to deal with you know a lot of the stuff that Joanne has faced. Um. In, in his lifetime, and it's which is really sad because our kids shouldn't have to deal with this, and we need to be able to to leave legacy behind. Um, and if it means that we have to show in our blood, it runs over and over and over to get a message across. Um, certainly, you know, certainly I will. But I totally agree with what you're saying around you know Duane's message, and unfortunately, it's it, he's not unique. Mm. It, it's very sad. Mm. Yeah. If you have just joined us, uh, we are chatting with Denise Kickett, who is one of the directors of Books and Boots, um, an organisation that rehouses pre-loved books from uh, libraries and private donors to First Nations communities in regional and remote Australia. Um, Denise, I know after the documentary screening, you're going to have a bit of a Q&A. Can you tell us a little bit about um, what people can expect from that? Well, we're hoping that the documentary will uh, provoke, you know, some, some conversation around how do we make sure that this doesn't happen in our communities, how do we make sure that we've got strong advocacy and we've got strong building capacity mechanisms 
for our children, and and not only for our children, but you know some some techniques, some tips and techniques for our policing services mm-hmm. and our educational services on how they should deal with um, you know situations like you know when a when a truancy is such, and all of those um, complex issues that end up. Um, you know, from a molehill into a mountain and it doesn't need to get like that. So I'm hoping it provokes some conversation around where we can get some, you know, real conversation happening around what we can actually do to help a lot of our uh, communities and, and what books and books and boots can do to help uh, to help advocate for some of those questions that might, might come out of it. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of this really comes back to that, I suppose, idea of, you know, the great Australian silence, I believe it's called, and, you know, the the lack of uh, understanding of uh, a lot of First Nations knowledges and, um, and and cultures that, you know, is part of the whole colonial project and how that, as you said before, kind of has, you know, affects the schooling system, it affects the healthcare system, uh, it obviously it greatly affects the, the way that um, First Nations people are over-policed. Um, you know, I'd love to know a little bit about, you know, Books and Boots, as you said, has been running since 2015. What kind of impact have, I know you said you kind of joined last year, but what kind of impact has Books and Boots seen over the um, over the years and kind of what do you hope for the future of the organisation? Okay, so um, Johnny and Tara, you know, they have been going since 2015, but since the middle of last year, they've really started to build momentum again, especially with the Chinese Treasures uh, project. And so what we're hoping to do, and I mean, you know, I, I've, I told you I've only started last year with them as a director, but we're certainly hoping they've got some real strong directors on board as well. And we've got my husband, who's the patron, <laughs> and I'm not sure if um, your listeners might know who my husband is, who's uh, Derek Kickett. Mm-hmm. ex-AFL legend in some people's minds might say that he's a legend. I certainly is to me. Um, and he's been using football and sport as a vehicle to help create positive change around, you know, health and uh, education and sport and all those sorts of things. So he's come on board as our patron. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're hoping, you know, to really build momentum, really move forward using the um, the books that we do receive from community uh, and these are books that, you know, for for um, years two right through to high school um, and even some of the books that we get, we, we share with the adults as well because there is um, some really interesting books that we get. So we're hoping to really build momentum, start doing, you know, some fundraisers like we're doing now and, yeah, let's, let's see how, you know, the next year pans out. But the reason why I joined Books and Boots was because I, I consider myself a strong advocate for human rights. Mm. I'm, I'm in tune with organisations that want to help the first peoples of this country out, you know, to better their lifestyles. Um, and what better way to start with, um, you know, starting with the next generation. So that's one of my key, my key um, ways, key drivers to move forward. And I know that Books and Boots, are really starting to build momentum. We're really starting to think about how we can really set some positive um, influences out there and, you know, do some real tips and techniques around awareness and involving more people, getting more people involved, getting more opportunities from local business to actually maybe donate uh, boxes to us so that we can deliver these books out to our remote communities that we work with. Currently, um, or previously, we've worked with Robinvale Aboriginal Community. 
and also the Lake Chai's Aboriginal community. So a heap of books have gone out to those here in Victoria. And in New South Wales, we've also got a couple of um, communities that we've been working with up there as well uh, through our Tiny Treasures uh, project. So we're quite excited. We're just, you know, hoping to move this into the next space now that we've got a full board on board and we've got our patron. Um, and I believe the board will be more than likely looking for a female patron to join maybe next financial year um, to really start to to get the legs and start to run run with our, with our you know, with books and boots. Mm. Well, it sounds like it's at a very exciting time uh, to be a part of the organisation. And I suppose if anyone is listening and they do want to uh, donate books or get involved, um, what's the best way that they can do that? Oh, look, there's a uh, website that we have, booksandboots.org.au. Uh, certainly go on there and you'll find all the information about uh, what books and, and, and boots can do for you. Uh, we've also got social media, like our Facebook page, uh, Books and Boots. You can go on there, like the page, uh, become a member. Um, yeah, so just check out our website. Amazing. Uh, Denise, thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, that was Director of Books and Boots, Denise Kickett, uh, a really incredible organisation that helps to close uh, the health and literacy gap for First Nations children. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. One in five Australians have a disability and disability presents itself in many ways. However, disabled people are still underrepresented in media and literature. Growing Up Disabled in Australia is a brand new anthology from those negotiating living with experiences of disability. It is the fifth book in the Growing Up series from Black Ink and it is edited by none other than Carly Finlay, no stranger to this program. With over 40 contributors to the series, the collection covers fiction, poetry, creative non-fiction and comics. And to speak about their contributions, we have two of the contributors joining me on the line today. We've got writers Jess Knight and Natalia Wikana. Uh, Jess is a writer and performer. You might remember her from her 2019 performance of Mormon Girl in the Melbourne Fringe Festival. And Natalia is a writer book reviewer and sensitivity reader. I should have both of you there. How are you going? Welcome to Triple R. Hello. (laughs) Amazing. Um, It is so nice to be chatting with you both. I've absolutely loved um, delving into this anthology. Uh, Jess, we might start with you. Um, Carly Finlay kind of opens up the anthology with a reflection on the social model of disability, uh, the social model of disability from the People with Disability Australia describes it as Uh, seeing disability as the result of interaction between people living with impairments and an environment filled with physical, attitudinal and communication and social barriers. I'm interested how this model sits with you and your way of thinking. Um, I didn't actually know about it growing up at all. So um, I was one of the people that grew up with the idea, um, lovingly put by their parents, that there's nothing wrong with you. you're fine. So I never really understood or knew about the social model of disability till I was about 31. Um, And so I feel like it it fits quite well because it made me realise that some of the stuff that I was struggling with wasn't because I suck, 
but actually because, um, you know, my eyes are not good and therefore it takes me longer to do things or get to places or to even see anything, if that makes sense. Mm. So I like it because it means that some of the onus is not just on my on myself, but actually just on things that I can't help. I guess what it means is a good attitude will not make me be able to see things that are outside of my field of vision. Mm. And what about you, um, Natalia? How does it sit with you? Oh, sorry, was the question? I, I suppose just thinking about or reflecting on the social model of disability that Carly opens the book up with, is that something that I suppose sits with um, your thinking and, and, the, and the way that you identify um, yeah, kind of. I, I actually didn't know about this social model until like a couple of years ago. So I was, so I'm still quite new to it and just, yeah, mm. getting a handle of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jess, I'd love to, I suppose, start by talking about your piece. Uh, it's called I Don't Need Them to See Through You. It's a very funny piece. Um, you have a great sense of humour. <laughs> There's um, really wonderful lines like um, eating potpourri from a bowl in a cafe because you thought it was mixed nuts and um, mistaking a stranger's toddler for a small adorable dog. Um, just really beautiful use of humour in your writing. I'd love to know, I suppose, how you think about humour and how it can be used as a tool for writing and, and writing about the self. Um, I feel like it's incredibly valuable, actually, and I think that um, it was a shame that I couldn't put all of the hilarious situations I've gotten myself into due to my lack of vision and certain disregard for my own uh, safety, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I had to keep it within a short, readable piece. So I just, I feel it's really important, and it is It is a coping mechanism for me, um, obviously, but I also feel that it is a coping mechanism that I've actually been lucky enough and I guess maybe a bit bit smart enough to use to my advantage. So it's not just me trying to deflect from things that I don't want to talk about. I'm actually quite happy to talk about difficult things, but I do feel like I want people... I want to change people's minds or change people's viewpoints by making them laugh more than I want to badger them with stuff. Mm. Yeah, it is a beautiful way to kind of access this um, real vulnerability that you do share with these experiences. You know, your writing uh, in this piece kind of reflects on your experience of disability, uh, I suppose, across quite a a wide um, age range. I suppose, what was that process of, of reflection like for you? It was quite uh, intense, actually, um, because it made me realise that, you know, I'm not, I'm not 24 anymore, and now that I do understand a little bit more, not a lot, but a bit more about the social model of disability, it actually has changed how I look back on my childhood, and so I feel like it was really valuable for me to be able to do that. And lucky for me, it, it paid off in the end because it, it made it to into the anthology. But it did make me go over my life quite intrinsically mm-hmm. with a fine-toothed comb um, because I could have shared any number of stuff uh, about myself for the anthology. But because I've written about um, my spinal surgery for, like, Scum magazine and I've talked about a bunch of other medical things in Mormon Girl... I felt like the eyesight thing was something I hadn't touched on. So it was exciting for me to be able to 
finally work on something about myself that I hadn't before. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's a pleasure to read your um, your writing and and you kind of. In your piece, you write about uh, the, your kind optometrist who kind of encouraged you to go on a disability pension or to kind of start yes, thinking about life that. Changing. And it, yeah. yeah, I think it just really highlights the importance of having access to uh, you know good health practitioners, people that can support exactly. you. Yep. Um, what yeah, what was that experience like for you when that happened? I was actually shocked. Look, I I knew I didn't have good eyesight. But I was, I guess, in denial as a kid and stuff because I had so many other, so many other horrible medical things I had to deal with at the time during my childhood. I think the eyesight thing and the not wearing my glasses was a very childish kind of way of me, uh, kind of like with my eating problems of like taking back some autonomy wherever I could scrape it together, if that makes sense. Mm. So to me, it was the eyesight. They're like, oh, Jessica, you need glasses. I'm like... Yeah, but you can't make me. You can make me go to doctors. You can make me get my blood tests. You can make me have horrible, horrible operations. But no amount of uh, anything, they couldn't force me to wear my glasses. So it was a bit of a punk thing for me to do that was more obviously not great for me um, because I couldn't see anything. But, damn it, I felt like I'd taken back some control. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that's a theme that kind of comes through uh, through a lot of these stories is about uh, gaining uh, gaining autonomy, I suppose, about your body and, and I suppose healthcare practitioners um, empowering people to do that as well, um, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, incredibly important. Um, Jess, you also, you, you write about this, you know, evolving relationship with your eyesight and with your glasses. I'd love to know. Oh, yeah, I wear my glasses. Now, everyone, I wear my glasses now. It's okay. I'd love to know what your what's your relationship like with your glasses now. Um, uh, I I like I love them and I hate them in equal measure. I like them because I can now I've got frames that I'm very happy with, obviously. But I think I will always be sad that they're really thick because I just really love the idea of having glasses that are like really thin and actually stay within the frame of the glasses. Anyone who's got thick lens glasses will know what I'm talking about. It's when you've got glasses that are so thick that it's it's too thick even for the frame. I do I do hate that a lot. But obviously that's a, a, an aesthetic concern that I really should shut up about and just deal with. No, you don't have to shut up about it at all. Um, thanks so much. Uh, if you have just joined us, we are chatting all about the Growing Up Disabled in Australia anthology. I'm joined by Jess Knight and Natalia Wikana. Uh, Natalia, I'd love to chat about your piece. Uh, it's called Catching Meaning. Can you tell me, I suppose, how your essay came about? Well, um, I actually wrote um, Catching Meaning because there was little res- re- little representation on intellectual disability mm. and um, I was also tired of um, disabled people being seen as inspirational mm. or um, portrayed incorrectly or negatively <coughs> sorry, by non-disabled creators and actors and, um, and society is never being seen as the source of our struggles and hate and um, I just think that disabled people definitely want to be heard and create stories. Mm. Yeah, sorry. absolutely. No, no, I hope you're okay. Um, okay, sorry, sorry, just cough. Just cough. <laughs> um, 
In your essay, you know, there's a real sense of, I suppose, early on not fitting in the kind of, um, the, the real sense that like mainstream schooling is not a, an accessible learning environment for you, but also for many people it is, mm. you know, it is aimed at a particular kind of learning that works for a particular kind of person. I'd love to know, um, I suppose, just reflecting on your piece, what would have made your schooling experience a more positive experience for you? Um, I think, well, I guess a general understanding of disabilities mm. and just that, yeah, um, yeah. Everyone, everyone, um, pr- process things differently, and yeah, I just think that um, there could have been like, like so many ways or methods to engage disabled kids, um, to learn. Mm. Yeah. And I suppose in a, in a similar way to Jess, you know, this kind of reflection process of what it's been like to um, grow up in an environment that is, you know, largely, particularly in the schooling system, not accessible. What was mm. that process of, of reflection like for you? Um, well, I would say it was when I was writing about, about my piece, I was a bit frustrated mm. that that actually happened and... I, I don't know about the school system like well, well now like I hope it has changed um, yeah uh, I just think that I wish people were more understanding and yeah mm. Absolutely. And I hope that, uh, yeah, it's something that can very much improve, uh, not only in our schooling system, but in, as we kind of spoke about healthcare system, it, you know, it kind of spreads everywhere. Um, Natalia, I've yeah. read that you have written five novels, which is incredibly <laughs> yeah. impressive. And uh, also... Uh, they're not really polished. <laughs> <laughs> but you've so. still written them. Um, and you're translating your work into Mandarin. I'd love to know yeah. um, what advice you have for um, emerging writers with disability. Um, uh, let me see, um, just, uh, well, writing is hard, well, I can't really sugarcoat that, and, um, but there are, like, so many disabled people who also write and have succeeded and just keep writing, Mm -hmm. and, like, don't feel pressure to enter, you know, contests or, um, just any writing, um, competitions unless you're ready um so yeah that's my advice that's I think that's great advice I mean keep keep writing it is a yeah it's absolutely a practice and I think that is very useful um for emerging writers but any writer um I'd you know I'd love to know I suppose from both of you you know there are so many pieces in that in this anthology that really grapple with um ableism and discrimination um but then also kind of coming to a point where you can recognize that behavior and language as ableist as kind of external like coming you know something that's coming onto you as opposed to um you know that something's wrong with you which obviously it's not um and again going back to that social model of disability I, I'd love to know what what has been the significance of reading all of these other stories about growing up um potentially in an ableist society but also just learning about other people's experience of growing up with disability um I would say that it's been really lovely and made you feel made me feel less alone mm-hmm. um and also to know that there are so many nuanced and different experiences out there and that this book has shown that people seem to want to read them which is the thing that I was really worried about I don't know about other people in the anthology but I was scared that people just wouldn't care mm-hmm. and I think that does come from the internalized ableism I was just like 
yeah, no, this is good, but I'll wait and see if people actually give a damn. And it seems that they do. So I'm so glad that I was wrong. What about you, Jeff? Uh, sorry, what about you, uh, Natalia? Uh, well, yeah, the same thing as what Jess said. I, um, I actually felt less alone actually reading all these stories. And um, at the beginning, um, when there was just you know call out for submissions for growing up disabled, I was I actually wanted to write you know, about my experiences, but I, I hesitated because I, I was thinking, you know, what if I'm not disabled enough? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. intellectual disability is, you know, quite, it's not really seen as, like, real disability uh, or serious. Um, so it was quite amazing and heartwarming to actually um, see that I'm not the only one who feels that way. Um, so, yeah, it was, I feel like, um, I feel like being part of, the, of a community from reading, from reading this book. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I I definitely think that uh, just, you know, from reading through these stories, it is such a common thread, not only in this anthology, but just in essentially, I've, I've read quite a few of the Growing Up um, series and I, I feel like a common thread throughout them all is that when people start to find other people that have similar experiences or when you start to find community that, you know, life really starts to shift, it starts to open up, it starts to, mm-hmm. you know, change your way of thinking about your own experience. Um, is that something that you feel like you've both experienced, I suppose, through this book? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, and, and even, I suppose, just the community around around this book. I mean, it's, I feel like I've just been seeing it everywhere. It's amazing how um, how well-received I think it's been and, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very exciting. That's a surprise. <laughs> um, <laughs> before I let you both go, you know, there are so many wonderful pieces in here. There's uh, poetry, there's non-fiction, there's it kind of got a bit of everything. Is are there particular pieces in here that have really resonated with either of you? Um, um, I think. Oh, oh, go ahead. Are you sure? Oh, thank you. Um, uh, Jessica Walton's poem, I think it's called Curve, is really good. Alistair Baldwin's is hilarious. Um, I did like, Natalia, I liked your piece a lot. Oh, I love yours too. It was so good. And it was thank so respectful. I wear glasses too. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Solidarity. Yeah. I love that. I think that's such a beautiful experience and I think it would be a common experience for a reader um, as well. I Yeah, it's just been a real joy to kind of delve into these stories and I've just loved the the depth and breadth of experience. I think it just, yeah, it adds so much to Australian literature and I thank you both for your, your words and, and for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> We're just chatting there with Jess Knight and Natalia Wincana. Sorry, uh, Growing Up Disabled in Australia is the new anthology that's out through Black Ink. It is edited by Carly Finlay and you can pick it up from your favourite bookstore. It's almost time for me to get on out of here. I do want to say big thanks to all my guests that joined me this afternoon a uh, big thank you to the Director of Books and Boots, Denise Kickett. Uh, if you don't know Books and Boots, they are an org that are rehousing pre-loved books uh, to First Nations communities in regional and remote Australia. They've been doing all this incredible work since 2015 and they've got a fundraiser happening uh, to support their wonderful work. It is a screening of In My Blood. It runs a really incredible doco. 
And of course, a big thank you to my guests just now, Jess Knight and Natalia Wigankana, uh, for joining me to chat about their contributions to growing up disabled in Australia. It is out now through Black Ink. Keep it locked to Triple R. This is Beth AQ. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Glass House, a weekly radio show that airs on Triple R each Wednesday. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via Twitter at BethanyAQ or the Triple R website, 